Uh, text for our sermon this morning is Job 31. It will be reading verses 24 through 28. Job 31, 24 through 38, uh, 28. If I have made gold my hope, or said to find gold, you are my confidence. If I have rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand had gained much, If I have observed the sun when it shines, or the moon moving in brightness, so that my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity deserving of judgment, for I would have denied God who is above. We'll first of all have our children's sermon. In the verses that we just read, Job is talking about worshiping God and loving God. And he tells us that to love or to trust anyone more than God is a great sin. To put our trust in money or our our things that we own or other people instead of God is a great sin. Or even to trust these things along with God is a great sin. This is the sin that God is warning us about in the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now let's think for a minute about just how great God is. God created everything. Think about all the beautiful things that you have seen. Mountains, sunsets, the ocean, rivers, lakes. Have you ever looked up at the sky at night and tried to count all the stars? I bet you can see a lot of stars if you go out to Tyler and Hannah's house. If you tried to count them, you'd probably give up within a few minutes because you'd say, I've counted to 100 already and I'm just still right here. I've got the whole rest of the sky to count. God made every single one of those stars. And in fact, the Bible says that God calls them all by name. Can you imagine knowing exactly how many stars there are and knowing the name of each one of them? That's how great God is. Think about all the amazing animals that you've seen. Have you ever been to the zoo? If you've been to the zoo, you've seen animals that you will never see in the fields around your house. There are no aardvarks or crocodiles or polar bears in South Dakota. I guess we can be glad. Although there might be some polar bears wandering around lately. People that study rivers and lakes and oceans and mountains and forests and deserts and jungles discover new animals all the time. We don't really know how many animals there are, but God does. He knows how many there are because He created them all. He knows what they're all called because they all belong to Him. Now, that's how great God is. And if we can understand that God is great, then we can understand how sinful it is to trust in anyone but Him. We can understand how sinful it is to say that there is no God or that there are other gods or that it's okay to believe whatever you want about God. This command, which says, you shall have no other gods before me, tells us that God sees everything we do. He knows everything we think. He hears everything we say, no matter where we are. If we're up in an airplane, if we're in a, under the sea in a submarine, if we're out in the yard, if we're down in the basement, no matter where we are, we are always before God. Nothing is hidden from Him. 
And that's one reason why this sin is so bad. Because not only does it pretend that God isn't real, it also pretends that even if He is real, He doesn't know everything. Now, we're Christians. We're God's children. So we know that God is real. And we know that He loves us. He gave us to Christian families. Families that know and love God. And it's important that we always remember and always value that. I mean, maybe you have something that's your favorite thing, and you hide it in your dresser, or you keep it in the closet, somewhere safe, and you want to protect it because you like it. To you, it's special. Well, that's, that's how you should love God. God should be the most important person in your life. You should think about Him all the time. You should always remember that He sees you everywhere you are. And if you do, you'll remember that you're always safe because God always sees you. And you'll remember not to sin because God always sees you. So I'd like you to pay close attention to the rest of the sermon. After we pray, we'll continue. Heavenly Father, Thy Word is perfect, restoring the soul and making wise the simple, enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit, and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Our catechism lesson addresses the preface to the Ten Commandments and then explains the negative, that is, what the command, first command forbids, and the positive, what it commands. And so that's our outline, some introductory comments, secondly, the negative aspect, and thirdly, the positive aspect. So by way of introduction, let me say a few things. Since humanity has a common origin in Adam and Eve, it isn't odd to find similarities at times in the folk ethics of various cultures. For instance, many peoples have a flood story in their folk histories. But it's as if the moral law was written on the human heart in Eden, but it was written in chalk. The fall and man's subsequent interaction with it has smudged letters here and there, inadvertently erased whole words, and that we tried to fill in the gaps, but got it all wrong, so that eventually the whole thing is hopelessly unreadable. And that's why most nations and most races generally agree on certain ethical points. Theft is bad, murder is bad, adultery is bad. However, the cultural leeway is pretty broad. In some cultures, when they say they want to have you over for dinner, they want to have you over for dinner. Sometimes when they say they want to have you over for dinner, that means they want to have you for dinner. The cultural leeway is broad, but either way, they would still say murder is bad. The moral law written on the human heart has been hopelessly defaced. So when we think of the moral law, we should be very grateful to God, that He hasn't left us without guidance and direction. The law is an amazing gift, a gift of grace, because we certainly don't deserve it. You just think of man's history. 
He was placed in paradise and given one law by which to live, and he promptly broke that law. It's amazing grace that God would stoop to give us law again. It is, it's wonderful that God hasn't just left us to our own devices, that He hasn't left us to our own blindness in our search for salvation. Now, the law, as we learn, has two tables. The first four commandments address our duties to God. The latter six are duties to our fellow man. Now, if you look at Job 31, you will see this exact same structure. In the verses we've taken as our sermon text, Job is defending himself against the charge of idolatry. And then in the very next paragraph, he begins to defend himself against the charges of harming his fellow man. Job and his friends clearly understand the law as Jesus summarized it. Now, there's an issue that I want to take up first. <coughs> Excuse me. Whenever mention is made of the Ten Commandments, someone will predictably protest, Christians aren't under the law. And it's kind of funny when people say this because we know that they don't mean that theft, adultery, and murder aren't sins. Whatever they may mean, Scripture never uses that phrase to suggest that God's law is optional for believers. Paul reminded even the little children in Ephesus to obey the fifth commandment, to honor their mother and father. Believers aren't under the law in the sense that they are no longer condemned by it. The law condemns anything less than 100% absolutely perfect obedience. And the reason why Christians aren't under condemnation is because 100% absolutely perfect obedience has been performed on their behalf by Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 1-4 reads, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Christians aren't condemned when they fail to perfectly obey the law because Jesus has perfectly obeyed it already for them. Believers strive to obey the law, not to attain salvation, but because they already possess it. Heidelberg Catechism question 2 tells us that we obey God out of gratitude for Him delivering us from our sin and misery. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that the law is of great use to believers by showing them how they may express gratitude for their free salvation and pointing out their sins so that they might flee to Christ continually. Not being under the law doesn't mean not obligated to obey it. It means not being under condemnation for breaches of it. No one, not even the holiest Christian, perfectly obeys the law of God. Nevertheless, God's law is still binding because it is a reflection of His nature. Just because we are incapable of fulfilling it doesn't mean that God must compromise who He is and that He's got to forfeit His rights. Just because I'm ugly doesn't mean no one else is allowed to be handsome. 
The law is not a system of salvation by works. The moral law is pure grace. I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's the gospel. And in those glorious words, God declares His relation to His people as their Savior and His rights over them as their God. And it's on the basis of His grace that He gives the moral law. If the Ten Commandments were a system of salvation by works, they would have no provision for sin. But we all know that the Old Testament administration had countless sacrifices for sin. Salvation was never by works, even under the Old Testament. It's always been by grace, by faith, through the perfect righteousness of the Redeemer. Paul tells us that the law is a tutor. It is a teacher that brings us to Christ. See, God hasn't purposely placed us under a law He knows we can't keep just so that He can judge us to hell. He has graciously revealed His moral perfection in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And we ought to love the Ten Commandments if for that reason alone, but just as important, is the work that the law does in the believer's heart. The law makes us despair of ever pleasing God in our own strength. That drives us to Christ because Christ's righteousness is the only righteousness good enough for God. And that's the righteousness that God imputes to His people by faith. I know that that sounds scary to some people, but it is gloriously true. I cannot and do not obey God's law perfectly, but I'm not condemned because the obedience that saves me ain't mine. It's the obedience, the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. And that's why Scripture can so confidently say there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now this brings us to our second point, the negative aspect. Now what puts most people off about the moral law is that it is mostly negative. The negative aspect of the law is especially offensive to the modern mind. The reason why is that the law tells us that we can't do something that we want to do. Sinners much more prefer being told, do this, rather than don't do this. Nearly all the commandments are presented in the negative form. Thou shalt not. Eight of the ten are in that format. Now, it is true that a positive aspect is implied in the negative form. If I'm forbidden from doing X, then I am commanded to do its opposite. If I'm commanded to do X, then I'm forbidden from doing its opposite. So the first commandment isn't simply a prohibition of idolatry. It requires that I do worship the one true God. But we do need to say something about this negative aspect because there's something beautiful about it, this negative aspect of the law. First of all, it's realistic about evil. When the law says, thou shalt not, it makes that act illegal. It prohibits that specific sin. It recognizes the existence of that sin, and then it speaks directly to it. But what's important for us to notice is that the law is limited. The law is only interested with, in dealing with evil, not controlling everything. The negative aspect of the law guarantees the preservation of positive freedom. Caleb will hear this eventually, and he can straighten me out if I'm mistaken, but I'd be willing to bet that there are more laws on the books 
that regulate legal and lawful activity than ones that prohibit crime. God's law, on the other hand, gives us a raw command, don't steal. And then it leaves us alone to acquire property, accumulate wealth, and provide for our family in any way that we want. Imagine if you could be busy about your livelihood without a thousand and one regulations, without registration fees, without licenses, without countless ordinances dictating everything from the use of your own land to the equipment that you can own to how many bathroom breaks you're allowed. And remember, you live in a place nicknamed the land of the free. Thou shalt not steal means that the law governs, only governs theft. It doesn't govern or control honestly acquired property and wealth. When the law prohibits blasphemy or false witness, it's actually guaranteeing liberty for every other form of speech. Now, under the current system, of course, you can blaspheme the name of God. You can curse the name of Jesus anywhere and at any time. You can cuss the paint off the walls. You can say any degenerate thing that your mind can conceive of, but that doesn't guarantee free speech because there are tons of things we're not allowed to say without facing harsh consequences. You can lose your job, your house, your bank accounts, and your freedom for uttering words against certain societal gods. And this unified hatred of Christianity is one of the greatest proofs of its truth. Society will let you say anything you want against God, the Bible, Jesus, and the church. Society tolerates Christian blasphemy. But this is the only blasphemy that our society tolerates. You can put a cross in a bottle of urine or put a Bible in a toilet and sell pictures of that as expensive fine art. But you can't say anything that can even remotely be construed as critical of Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, etc. without facing harsh penalties for quote-unquote hate speech. Error hates truth. But this negative aspect of the law protects us from heavy-handed government. If laws are primarily negative in their presentation, then we are free to move without the state breathing down our neck at every turn. Now, sinners always portray God's law as restrictive and repressive. And that's why they use words like liberated to describe freedom to sin. I mean, think about this. We, it's in our recent newsletter message. The greatest law table of all time contains a mere 10 laws. And yet people complain about how strict the Bible is. And these same people will happily submit to thousands of regulations, pages and pages of rules in their company handbooks, dozens of rules in their video games or the sports leagues that they're involved with. But 10 short rules, which history shows to be the wisest and best ever written, no thanks. Give me the 10,000 arbitrary laws of man rather than the 10 good laws of God. In the negative aspect of the first commandment, Idolatry is explicitly forbidden. And I don't know how else to say it, but that God is intolerant. He demands that we worship Him and only Him. The Catechism does us a huge favor, by the way, by defining idolatry. Question 95 defines idolatry as, as really two things with two sides each. 
believe, on the one hand, believing that God doesn't exist or that another God does is forbidden by the first commandment. We are not to believe false things about God. Heresy or false doctrine is forbidden by the first commandment. On the other hand, believing that though God exists, our trust in Him must be supplemented by anything else or having anything else in which we trust alongside God is also forbidden as idolatry by the first commandment. And therefore, Arminianism, Pelagianism, Popery, indeed all schemes of self-salvation are idolatry forbidden by the first commandment. The sin of idolatry is aggravated by the fact that it is committed, as God says, before me. Those words, before me, literally before my face, remind us that God sees everything. We are always before the face of God. Everything we say and do is exposed and open before Him. Now, we often picture idolatry as this crass bowing down to a stone image. And while that it certainly is idolatry, Idolatry, like all sins, has an internal as well as external aspect. At bottom, idolatry is trusting anyone slash anything instead of God or anyone slash anything alongside God. The moral law binds all men to acknowledge God as God and as their God, to worship and trust only Him. Refusal to do this is a direct assault on God's sovereignty. The first commandment stands at the head of the Decalogue for a reason. The following nine commandments draw their authority from the first. As bad as any of us may think that murder is, as bad as any of us may think that theft is, as bad as any of us may think that perjury is, they pale in comparison to violations of the first commandment. Obedience here is not a matter of taste. It is a matter of life and death. And speaking of death, under the Old Testament, idolatry was punishable by death. That's how seriously the Bible takes the issue of worshiping God. Death was the law's prescribed penalty for every case of idolatry. Now, to the modern mind, that seems drastic. Death for idolatry? But that emotional response demonstrates that we, don't that we don't view the worship of God as important. Because we don't bat an eye at imposing the death penalty for crimes against the state. Because that's more important to us. You committed first degree murder? To the chair with you. You blasphemed Jesus Christ? Here's a golden globe or Oscar. You defied the God of the universe? Here's the keys to the Oval Office. We esteem obedience to man higher than obedience to God. Now, this brings us to the third point, the positive aspect. I'm sure we've all seen those lists where, like with, with one heading, as sort of a setup line for the, for the list. You know you've been married a long time when, point, point, point. You know you're from South Dakota when, that, that, that. I think it would be helpful when considering the Ten Commandments, to preface each commandment with God's own preface. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. If we start there, then we are always aware that the Decalogue belongs to the covenant of grace. Each moral norm 
God lists for His covenant people is prefaced by the gospel. I am the Lord your God. As we consider the first commandment, let's keep God's preface in mind. That command is rooted in the gospel. In fact, as we think of all the commandments, we ought to keep God's preface in mind. Read them all that way. I am the Lord your God, who chose you and redeemed you. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God, who chose you and redeemed you. Therefore, you shall not make graven images. I am the Lord your God, who chose you and redeemed you. Therefore, you shall not murder or steal or commit adultery. The first commandment stands at the head of the first table, the way the first table stands at the head of the second table. All the crimes and sins men commit against their fellow men are committed because they refuse to submit to the first table of the law. Likewise, every violation of God's worship, every misuse of God's name, Every desecration of the Lord's day occur because men do not take the first commandment seriously. The moral law reveals God's holy character. But it's really even more than that. The moral law reveals God's sovereignty. He is God. His name is Jehovah. I am. And therefore, the moral law is a manifestation of His sovereignty over his creation. God is sovereign because he is God. The Christian religion is the only true religion because it is the one God revealed. Religion is not a matter of choice without any consequences. God commands all men everywhere to own him as God. You shall have no other gods before me is as binding on the naked tribesmen of the Kalahari as it is on the Staten Island-dwelling CEO of a Fortune 500 company. God demands that he be worshipped as the one true God. Failure to meet God's requirement invites God's wrath. It leads to judgment. To say that men are free to worship or not worship without consequence is to deny the authority of the Bible, it is to negate the whole meaning of biblical faith. Now, even though the law is a gift of grace to God's church, it's still morally binding upon all men, whether they belong to the church or not, because the law reflects God's character, and therefore, it reflects His moral government over His creation. To say that not everyone is bound by the Ten Commandments is to say that God doesn't rule over everyone. That's just not true. Obedience to God's law isn't a matter of taste. It's a matter of life and death. The moral law reveals God's character. It's the standard by which all men are judged and by which the final judgment will be rendered on judgment day. No one will be able to say, I was raised atheist or Hindu, so I don't believe this stuff. I don't believe in the Ten Commandments, so I'm off the hook. That ain't going to happen. God will judge everyone. And he'll judge them according to his law, period. Romans 1, 18 to 21 reads, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, 
so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they didn't glorify Him as God. Atheists love to pretend or present themselves as great intellectuals. They present their unbelief as a bold act against religious oppression. But when you strip away all their bravado, you'll find intellectual midgets that use big, bold, blustering words because they love sin. You'll never find an atheist who underneath all of his philosophical arguments against the existence of God isn't really just defending his love of sin. He was caught cheating on his wife. He was caught embezzling money from work. He was caught in a sodomite relationship. And instead of repenting and fessing up, he's doubled down. Ah, I don't believe in God, so you can't judge me. Nah, 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 nah. And that's why the Bible always equates sin with folly. And that's why the Bible equates righteousness with wisdom. Sin ain't smart. Don't let anyone fool you. You can deny God's existence all you want and pretend to be some brainy egghead. There will still literally be hell to pay for your idolatry. Men suppress the truth because they love sin. Enough is revealed in nature to prove that God exists. Anyone who says that he doesn't believe in God is a liar, according to Romans 1. God doesn't believe in atheists. And Romans 1 goes even further and says that when men fall into extremely blatant idolatry and into gross immorality, it's because God is judging them for breaking the first commandment. They know the law of God and they've hardened their hearts against its demands by claiming either that God doesn't exist or that some other God or gods do exist. Such men will be weighed and found wanting and will deservedly be condemned to eternal punishment for not rendering to God the love, the trust, and the worship that He is due. Now, since we're looking at the positive aspect of this commandment, let's close on a positive thought. There's a sense in which the Ten Commandments are ten promises. They tell us that we don't need those other things because we have what we need in Jehovah. We don't need to steal because He meets our needs. We don't need another God because we have Him. He is the Lord our God who delivered us from sin. We have a trustworthy Savior. That's what the preface to the Decalogue tells us. <coughs> Excuse me. That's what the first commandment tells us. God is our God. And Job tells us that idolatry is an iniquity deserving of judgment because it denies God who is above. 1 John 5, 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let us pray.